when is the last time you were confronted with grief? When did sadness last fill your heart and mind? And have you ever felt so overcome with sorrow that getting out of bed felt impossible? Have you ever felt so sad that your bones hurt? How have you dealt with depression and sorrow and feeling hopeless in this life? In the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis says this about depression. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. Lewis alludes to it, but it's much easier to have a broken leg than a broken heart. Right? Physical ailments make sense to those around us, right? It's not that difficult to explain or hard to tell about the things we suffer from physically. It's easy for people to feel your pain when they see your pain. But what about when on the outside you have it all together, but on the inside you are weary of life itself? The thought of simply speaking up about your sorrow and telling other people about it only sends you into a spiral of shame. How can you help people see what you feel? Though we have been redeemed and we have the Spirit of God, we are still not perfect. We live in broken bodies that are longing for redemption. We have or we will have days, weeks, and even months and years where sorrow follows us like a shadow and it does not leave us. But how do we deal with this? What do we do? How do we find light in the darkest moments of our lives? As we saw last week with Psalm 1, we don't trust the counsel of the world. We trust the counsel of the Word. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42. Would you follow along as I read? Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise. 
a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. And my God, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I shall remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, of Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. How do we find hope in hopeless times? There's two things I think from this psalm we need to do. First, we need to identify the cause. What's causing our sense of hopelessness? And next, we need to embrace the cure. Identify the cause and then embrace the cure. Let's look at the first point. To find hope in hopeless times, we must first identify the cause of our hopelessness. As I said last week, we're taking a summer break from the gospel according to Mark to work through the book of Psalms. The Psalms are 150 chapters broken down over five different books. So over the next eight, eight weeks, what we're going to be doing is taking a psalm from each book. So for example, last week we're in Psalm 1. We took that from book one. This week we start in book two, if you'll notice at the very top of your Bible there, Psalm 42. Next week we'll start book three and we'll do Psalm 73. In a sense, this is giving us a tour of Israel's history. We're seeing different uh, peaks and different mount, parts of the mountain range of Israel's history of what God has done in their life. And here we're seeing how the people of God thought about God, talked to God, sang to God in triumph, tribulation, and trials. And here in Psalm 42, it lists the author as the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were apparently subjects to the priest and responsible, responsible for the singing that went on in the temple. Uh, you can read of some of their history in 1 Chronicles, in particular 2 Chronicles 20, where it says they stood up and led the people with a loud voice to the Lord. And here we see the Psalms were written by the sons of Korah, which I assume means that Psalm 42 was written as a worship song for the people of God. This was given so that the people could come together and sing to God to give God the praise he's due and to remind one another of who God is and to encourage them in the faith. We also see here that this is no ordinary psalm. It's a psalm of sorrow and of lament. You see the distress the psalmist is in in verse 1. Look there with me now. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul 
for you, O God. The imagery is one of desperation. Just a imagined a, a part, a, excuse me, a parched land that has been devastated by drought. And then imagine a, a deer that is searching and looking and longing for water and cannot find it. The psalmist says, that is how I feel in this moment. I am thirsty. I am searching. And what is he searching for? He is searching for God. But the problem in this moment is the psalmist has seemed not to found God. He's longing and yet he's not arrived. He further shares how desperate he feels in verse 3. He says, my, my tears have been my food day and night. Then we see in verse 7, look there now. As he thinks about the Jordan River where he is. He says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Meaning, he feels so desperate. He feels so weak and frail. It is though he is in this river and the waves keep crashing over and over and the currents keep dragging him down. He is weary, he is weak, and he is depressed. Church, aren't you grateful the Bible speaks like this? Aren't you encouraged that God inspired Scripture in His kindness to give language to how many of us have felt or will feel? What it tells us is that God sees us in our suffering. He is not apathetic towards what we're going through. No, He cares for us, He loves us, and He's given us His Word to encourage us. So it's happening here. The psalmist is exhausted. He's spiritually, physically, and emotionally tired. But what has caused this awful state? Why is he so desperate? I think there's three reasons in particular that the psalmist is utterly hopeless or feels that way. First is this, is he is in exile. I don't mean, I don't, I don't think this was written during Israel's exile, but he himself is unable to go to Jerusalem. He is unable to attend the temple and to worship with the people of God. That's why he says in verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? Then he goes on in verse 4. He says this, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He is deeply grieved because he cannot go to the temple of God and worship with the people of God. He is far from the presence of God. He is not able to lead the people in singing and shouting to the Lord. We don't know why he is far from Jerusalem. Some people think this was about David's life uh, when he was running and fleeing from Saul. We don't know why he was running, but he tells us where he is in verse 6. He says, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. This is far north of Jerusalem, most likely the, the source of the Jordan River, right there at the Sea of Galilee. The psalmist is far from God, and he knows that the only thing that can satisfy him, the only thing that can bring, bring him comfort, is being in the presence of God. He knows then his soul will be made well. Then his sorrow will cease. Brothers and sisters, in moments of deep distress and sorrow, what does your heart long for? When you're in the hardest moments of your life, 
What does your mind tell you you need? It doesn't really matter what you feel you need or what you think you need. I want to tell you today, the thing you need more than anything else in this life is to be in the presence of God. So much of our sorrow that we face in this life is simply the fact is that we are physically not with God yet. So much of the the hardship and the trial that we experience is that we are not with Him yet. And in these moments, we must be careful. Because our hearts will begin to tell us we need something different, something else. It's like this. For years, when I face anxiety or hardship or despondency, my heart will tempt me and my mind will tempt me to go back somewhere in the past. It'll try to get me to be nostalgic and tell me that there was a point in my life that was better than what it is now. It seeks to encourage me to escape the moment, to go back to a time in my life where the, the pain and sorrow didn't, wasn't present yet, where I had not yet experienced hardship, where life felt more fun and freer. But the problem is, nostalgic is a dangerous and paralyzing drug. It does not free us from shame and sorrow. It only enables sorrow. C.S. Lewis, again, in The Weight of Glory, he, he's talking about nostalgia and our temptation to attach in our minds, our happiness and our joy and beauty to an object or to an experience. And in the weight of glory, he's saying, that's when your mind is tricking you. Don't believe it. Listen to what he says. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. For it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. C.S. Lewis here, along with the psalmist, would agree. He's saying that in moments of sorrow and sadness, your heart is longing for something. It's either longing to go back where you think life was better or longing to go forward where you think this pain won't be. But in reality, your heart is longing for something greater than this life has to offer. You're longing for God himself. That's what you need to fix the pain in which you experience. Just think for a moment, if you got to go back to the moment in your life, 5, 10, 15 years ago, when you thought life was better, there would be a glimpse of satisfaction. And what would happen next? It would flee you. It would desert you. Because the thing, the place, the person was never built to sustain your hope. It cannot do it. It was only supposed to point you to the one who can. That is God himself. The sadness we face in this life is a declaration that this world isn't as it should be. The sorrow we experience is saying that something is off. The despondency and desperation that we feel is telling us that we were made for something greater, which is God himself. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Our hearts are frail and feeble. 
We attach to things in this world to find comfort, but they can bring no comfort at all. Only God's presence can give us what we need. And don't get me wrong. We have been saved. We've got the Spirit of God. We can enjoy wonderful times with the Lord now in prayer and reading our Bibles. I I pray we all have wonderful quiet times this week. I love gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day. This is literally my favorite day of the week. I love it. But reading my Bible and praying and the Lord's Day are but appetizers. Growing up, we didn't have money, so we didn't get appetizers. We didn't realize how great they are. But now when we go, I love getting appetizers, right? But they're not supposed to satisfy you. They're but a, a trailer of a greater meal that's to come. So our quiet times and our gatherings on Sunday are pointing to something greater, to that rest that will never end, to the place where pain does not exist, where, as Thomas Watson says, where uh, sorrow cannot live and joy cannot die. That's what we're looking forward to, to being with the God of all eternity. That alone can satisfy our sorrow and our broken hearts. The psalmist was devastated, grieved, because he could not be in the presence of God to worship God. And to make matters worse, the psalmist was experiencing an outward affliction. He was experiencing outward affliction. This is the second reason for the cause of his hopelessness. If you look in verse 3, you see he's being afflicted by an enemy. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And later in verse 9 and 10, he says, why do I go mourning because the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? As if being far from the presence of God wasn't bad enough to make matters worse. He has someone who's taunting him and afflicting him and saying, where is your God? This person knows that he's trusting in God and he's mocking him for his faith and mocking God for his apparent absence. The psalmist is grieved. He's afflicted. Brothers and sisters, the world and the devil love to mock the people of God while they wait on God. In fact, much of the heartache and pain we'll face in this life is we have an enemy who longs to see us suffer and fail. Who, like Job's wife, will say, curse God and die? Who, like Job's friends, will say, maybe God was never for you? Or, better yet, maybe God is finally giving you what you deserve. But we are not, ignorance of the, we're not ignorant of the enemy's crafty schemes. He loves to pursue and afflict us when we are in our most vulnerable state. When we receive that life-altering diagnosis. When the healing does not come and we lose that loved one we love so dearly. He relishes, relishes in sneaking up behind us and saying, where is your God? Brothers and sisters, anyone who says to you in your moment of distress, where is your God, is not your friend but your eternal foe. They have come to ruin you and see you suffer in your grief. When someone at the lowest point of your life is pointing you to question God, they are not for you. They are against you. When you don't know who to trust and you don't know what to feel and you don't know what to believe, do not believe the one who causes you to question God. They may throw a rope in a pit, but it is not to help you. It's to hurt you. They don't want to help you out of the pit. They want to bury you in it. This goes back to last week with Psalm 1. Blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
even when you're in the deepest and darkest moments of your life. Do not believe, do not follow the counsel of the wicked. Here the psalmist is far from God. He's afflicted by this enemy. And then lastly, he's dealing with an inward trial. It's a third reason, third cause for his hopelessness. He's fighting an inward trial. We see this in three places in particular. You see it in verse 4. Look down there. He, he finally gives in to nostalgia. He thinks, I will go back in my mind to a time when it was much better than it is now. But then it backfires on him. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And then this thought doesn't help him. It only hurts him. It sends him to a, a dreadful spiral. We, we see his response in verse 5. He hits rock bottom and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He is shouting. He is rebuking himself. Why are you doubting? Why won't you believe? He says the same thing in verse 11 and later on in chapter 43. We see him fighting unbelief at its peak here in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, I, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He moves from questioning himself now to questioning God. He'd begun to walk in the counsel of the wicked. He had begun to embrace the enemy's anthem as his own. Where are you, God, he says. Why have you forgotten me? The God who forgets no one now in the psalmist's mind, has now forgotten him. The very man who not that long ago was leading the people of God and praising God is now questioning the very God he praised. This is a warning to us all that regardless of how long we've walked with the Lord, regardless of our responsibilities in this life, the embers of unbelief lie in the bottom of all of our hearts. And if we are not careful the right wind in the form of a taunt, a temptation, or a trial will come into our life and blow it into a full, fan, full flame fan, or a full flame, excuse me, of unbelief. To where we doubt God, where we no longer believe Him. The psalmist is far from where he wants to be, and he's being heckled and mocked by the enemy, and has fallen into an emotional pit. And now he is doubting God, the one whom he loves to praise. I think it shows us the root of his depression is unbelief. The thing he's fighting against is unbelief. I want to say this on depression. I know there's those among us who are circumstantially depressed. Where ordinarily you're pretty happy, but when certain hard seasons come, they, they knock you down. Maybe when you go see family and you have to leave, that's hard. Or when unusual hardships hit you, loss of a loved one or a job. Ordinarily, you're pretty happy. You continue to follow the Lord. This life doesn't feel very heavy. But there are those among us who are not circumstantially depressed, but dispositionally that way. Where this life has felt heavy, and it always has. That your grief and sorrow, it ebbs and flows, but it never goes out. It's like a humming sound in the back of your mind. And at any moment, it can become paralyzing in your life. If that's you, I... I don't want you to hear me saying, just believe harder and your life will be easier. Any more than I would say to somebody with a sprained ankle, just run faster. 
We want to be here for you. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. We want to give you the support and the help that you need. I do think this shows us that regardless of our circumstance or our disposition, that when we are in the darkest moments of our life, when we are in the hardest times of our life, we are actually in the battleground for faith. That is where we must fight for belief. Will we trust the promises of God? Or will we believe the anthem of the enemy? Will we continue to walk in the little light that we see, walk towards it, or will we let darkness win the day? That's where the psalmist is. He is in a spiritual pit. But praise God, he does not stay there. The psalmist is overcome and he feels helpless. He can't go to the temple. He's taunted by an enemy and he's got this inward trial. He's feeling hopeless, alone, and exhausted. I think it shows us here in Psalm 42, much of the sorrow that we face in this life is because we're far from God, because we're feeling affliction from the enemy, and we have an inward trial that we are up against. But how do we overcome it? We see the causes, but how do we find the cure? I think we see three cures here. So that's my second point. We need to identify the cause, and next we need to embrace the cure. Embrace the cure. There's three things here I think the psalmist does that can strengthen us and encourage us in our times of deep distress. The first is pray. First thing we must do when we're in a spiritual pit, in spiritual darkness, we must pray and call out to God. But notice what the psalmist does with his prayer. He's not offering up a generic prayer. No, he's praying honestly to God. It doesn't hold back what he's feeling or what he's thinking. In verse 1, he tells God, Lord, I'm, I'm searching for you and you cannot be found. You seem to have left me. We see later on in, in other parts we just saw in, in verse 9, he's saying, God, where are you? Why have you forgotten me? Why is what my enemy's saying? It seems to be true at this very moment. He says, I'm searching for you. Why, why have you gone away from me? Notice who he takes his hard thoughts to. Verse 9, it says this, I say to God, my rock. He takes his hardest thoughts and his deepest struggles to the only one who can do anything about them, to God himself. Brothers and sisters, this psalm is a model for us and teaches us how we should pray in the darkest and hardest moments of our lives. Our greatest weapon in the fight for hope and faith when we all feel hopeless is prayer. And because of Christ, we can at any time, from any place, go confidently and boldly and ask of him. That's why James says in James 5, 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's why the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, 16, he's, he's talking to a group of people who have followed God who are now questioning, was it worth it? Who are now asking themselves, have the one that we followed, has he forgotten us? And he writes to them and says, no, this Jesus, our great high priest, he's not forgotten us, so therefore let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Can you think of a better place, a more safe place to take your sorrows? and your hardships than taking them to God. To the God who is infinite in power and in wisdom and in goodness. To the God who's near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. 
to the God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, we have access to this God because of Christ. And we need to take advantage of our deep and dark moments. Take advantage of prayer. Go often and regularly to Him. There's no safer rock to cling to. No sweeter friend to talk to than going to God in prayer. Going to God in prayer when we feel weary from within or afflicted from without is how God gives us more grace to keep going. It's how He fuels our hope and our love and sustains our joy in Him. It's how He gives us more of Himself. And the grace that God gives us in our time of need through prayer, it doesn't mean that God immediately fixes our circumstances. It doesn't mean that God makes our life any easier. If you notice here in Psalm 42, it looks like he keeps praying that he's going through trials and yet he keeps trusting God. But in those moments of distress, when we go to God in prayer, we're not forcing his hand, but instead God is fixing our hearts in those moments. It doesn't change our circumstances necessarily but he changes us in the midst of our circumstances. God knows everything and knows all that we need, so prayer has never been for him. Prayer has always been for us, for our hearts, for us to go to him and to ask of him, to tell of our greatest fears and our greatest struggles and our greatest doubts, to go and ask confidently of him. And when we do that, God does something amazing. He takes our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and he places them where they should have been all along, on himself. So what was happening in prayer? Brothers and sisters, the suffering and the sadness we face on our way to heaven is meant to cause us not to run from God, but to God. The suffering that we experience, the the trials that we had experienced in this life is to cause us to come to the end of ourselves directly into his arms even when we feel like we have nothing to say at all, God still says, come to me. Richard Sibb says that God can make sense of even a confused prayer. Sibbs goes on in the Bruce Reed and says this, sometimes a Christian has such confused thoughts that he can say nothing but as a child cries, O oh, Father, not able to express what he needs. These stirrings of spirit touch the heart of God and melt him into compassion towards us. What warms a father's heart more than to hear his child in his distress cry, Father? That is who our God is. He's not far from us in those trials. He's reaching out his arms and saying, Come to me, for I am near. For I care, for I love you, and I will not desert you. Prayer is a reminder that we are not alone. That he is with us and he will not desert us. Psalmist not only prays when he's in deep distress, but he also secondarily, this is the second cure we see, he sings. He sings. I said this at the beginning, but this was written to be sung by the people of God. And when might they have sung this? This psalm in particular, when might the psalmist or when the people of Israel, why would they have sung this? When they were in affliction and in trial and distress. God had given them a song to sing to him. We even see this in verse 8. If you look there now, look what he says. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
He sings to God in his distress, and he says, notice what he calls his song. He says, it's a prayer to the God of my life. Augustine said, anyone who sings prays twice. That's what's happening here. The psalmist finds hope in hopeless times by singing to God, reminding himself of who God is, what God has done, and what he's pledged himself to do. Remember Acts 16? Paul and Silas, they're in prison. They've been beaten for casting out this demon, this unclean spirit. They're thrown into a prison in Philippi. They're chained. Their feet are in stocks. And what are they doing? Luke writes in Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. When we are in our deep distress, singing is a balm to our souls to encourage us and to strengthen our faith, faith, to give God the praise he's due, to, to encourage us to keep going, to keep trusting, to don't shrink back. And there's something that is built into singing that God has given us, that, that serves us, that builds us up, that, that strengthens us. I mean, why else do we sing songs at funerals? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we sing songs at funerals? The, the person is dead. This is not for them. The songs are for us to encourage us, to, to give us strength, to give us hope, to keep going, to keep trusting God while we wait on Him, while we wait for heaven. And brothers and sisters, I beat this drum and I'm going to continue to beat this drum. This is why we sing the way we do at this church. I could not care less about entertaining a person. I've not been paid to entertain you and to make you feel good, but to help you to get to heaven. To help you keep trusting God and walking in faith and fighting for faith to help those who are suffering who are hurting, and who are longing for healing. God has given us these songs to encourage us and to help us. That's why we sing rich theological songs throughout church history. Or as one soon-to-be member said, the greatest hits of the 1800s. Which is going to be our new church slogan. We, we are happy to sing old and new songs, but we want to sing rich biblical songs and theological songs. Why? Because my feelings change. But God and his word do not change. So we want to sing how he's revealed himself in his words. We want to sing and take our eyes off our present moment and present affliction to the God who can do something about them and will do something about them. That's why we sing songs like Afflicted Saint and It Is Well With My Soul because I'm singing to Ben and Anna. <laughs> I'm singing to Bill and Laura. They just keep going. To John and Jess. To Ryan and Dana. To say, if you can't see his hand, you can trust his heart. Keep walking, keep trusting him. He does not desert his people. To remind us all that he does not desert us. That he will keep us to the end. These songs were meant to be our companions on our way to heaven. We should lean on them regularly and often. That's why tonight we'll sing a song like Glory Land and Hark I Hear. When we sing a lot about heaven because we want to loosen our grip. We want to take our eyes off the world and think about the thing that is eternal. We want to think about the city that will last forever, which is heaven with God. It's why we sing the way that we do, for he is faithful. We want to encourage one another on our journey to heaven to not give in, to not quit. So when you come here and you're tired and you're exhausted and worn out, I want you to sing loud anyways. Sing not for yourself, but sing for God and sing for those around you so that they might have the encouragement that you are wanting in that moment. Because the day is going to come when they're going to sing to you. They're going to seek to strengthen you. Church, when you feel hopeless, when you feel weary, pray to God and sing with all your heart to God. It gives Him glory 
It declares something about him to the world around us, and it strengthens our hearts while we walk towards heaven. The last cure that we see, so we're going to find hope in hopeless times. We need to trust. We need to pray. We need to sing. We need to trust. Here we see the psalmist is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. He's in his most vulnerable state. And he could have given in. He could have joined in with the enemy. He could have said, you're right. Where is this God? He's left me. All I've done has been faithful to him, but he has deserted me. He could have given himself to some sin, some vice to medicate his pain, but that isn't what he does. No, he, he holds on to God. He instructs himself to wait on God. See, the structure of the passage throughout Psalm 42 is he laments, he grieves, and then he finds strength to praise. It happens multiple times throughout Psalm 42. We see this in particular at the end of the chapter. You see here in in verse 11, after responding to his grief that he is being taunted by the enemy, look at verse 11. What does he say there? Again, as he said in verse 5 already, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Instead of doubting God, the psalmist rebukes himself. He says, stop thinking that way. Don't doubt him. Believe, trust him, keep walking, for he is faithful. He will do what he said he will do. Instead of giving in to his doubts, he fights for faith. Brothers and sisters, sometimes in our deep, darkest moments, we need just enough faith to doubt our doubts. Enough faith to talk back to our unbelief. To say, I have too much faith to trust my doubts. Here's what the psalmist does. He instructs himself. He rebukes himself. He encourages himself from within. This is where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book, and it primarily is on Psalm 42, on spiritual depression. And he says that much of our problem in this life is we only listen to ourselves and we don't talk to ourselves. And he uses the example here of Psalm 42, and he says this. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? Then you must go on to remind yourself who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. In the midst of your doubts, which voice typically wins out? Doubt or faith? Trust or unbelief? The psalmist says, I'm not going to let unbelief win. He rebukes himself. He's not led away by foolish men or faulty thoughts or emotions. He exhorts himself. He rebukes himself. He tells himself to remain faithful, to keep hoping in God, regardless of what he feels or what he sees. Church, in our darkest and deepest and hardest moments, when we don't feel like we have enough to keep going, we must remind ourselves that God's word and his promises are far more trustworthy than how we feel that they are lasting, that they do not change. There's nothing about them that alter. Our circumstances and our emotions, they change, they ebb, they flow, but he does not and he cannot. And in our hardest moments, 
where we feel overcome by sorrow, we must remember that none of us have encountered the sorrow that Christ did on our behalf. None of us experienced the sorrow that he felt within his own soul. You remember what he says the night before he's betrayed? The night of him being betrayed? Matthew 26, with Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says that my sorrow is, or my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Ever, have you ever been so, sorrow, so sorrowful that you wanted to die? Or felt like dying? Well, Christ has. And why would his soul be so sorrowful? Because he was soon to bear the wrath of God. He was soon to be cast down so that we could be brought up. He was soon to be cast down so that we could draw near to God. I mean, here the psalmist is lamenting that he cannot go into the presence of God. And without Jesus, neither can we. But he was cast down so that we could draw near to God and shout that God is our rock and that God is our salvation. He was brought, he brought us near by being cast away so that we could have hope, that we could be eternally happy, that we could be fixed from within and be saved for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, Christ is the true cure for a broken heart. Christ alone can cure our sorrows and our sins and can fix our greatest sadnesses. Because of Christ, we can pray and we can sing and we can rejoice with confidence that this life will pass away. But our standing with God cannot and will not. That we will be with Him for all eternity, singing with the people of God, rejoicing with glad shouts in the house of God for all eternity. And as Isaiah 25 says, we will shout with all the people, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Because of what Christ has done, all those who repent and believe will be in the presence of God one day. And everything there is going to be okay. the sorrow that fills your heart, the burdens that you bear in this life will be no more. They will have no place in you. They will be forced to flee. Everything sad will one day become untrue because of what Christ has done. And all the sorrow that we bear, all the sadness that we carry in this life will be no more. And our sorrow will turn into joy in the presence of our God and our salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grateful that he was acquainted with grief and sorrow so that we would no longer have to be. So that we could come to you with confidence and with boldness in our deepest, deepest and hardest times when we feel alone and feel like we have nothing left. Father, we're thankful that we can draw near to you with confidence. Lord, may you strengthen our faith. May we trust and lean on the cures that you've given us, ultimately Christ, but praying and, and singing and trusting. Lord, may we all remain faithful to the end. May you get glory for how you bring us through these trials to be with you for all eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.